Hello and welcome to another episode of Ideas Don't Bleed, a comics podcast presented by Ashcan Press and featuring Matthew Rosenberg and the Supple Boys, Ethan S. Parker, and Griffin Sheridan. This is part two of our discussion with Leah Williams. We hope you enjoy. I did create a run before I got to Marvel a little bit, and then I was doing some, and then I, I took some time off from it. And, you know, in the past year, I, I really sort of tried to go back into it. And the just the other day, I mean, I think it was yesterday, uh, I was talking to a group of writers but uh charles soul was one of them and he was talking about something else he was talking i think he was talking about a tv show and he he just said randomly he's like this show feels like when someone's been at marvel or dc too long and they go out and do their creator own book and it's just too fucking weird and i was like <laughs> oh shit i think that's the book i'm doing <laughs> like that's that's the thing i'm making now and i love it and i'm really proud of it but i'm also like when you talk about being like you know growing into your pot too much i was like yeah and now i'm back on creator owned and it's i'm like it's too much space and i'm being too weird in it <laughs> and, and like uh, it's it's both terrifying and really the most rewarding. yeah it's the most rewarding thing i've ever done and the scariest thing i've ever done at the same time do you yeah. feel that yeah. way about any of your back catalog stuff that you're like this feels like it was written by a different person or like even do you disagree with what you're saying in any of your older stuff at this point i don't read my work <laughs> hmm. i'm too afraid but there have been times when i've had to go back and look at older stuff that I've written, um, you know, for reference reasons to see like what something looked like or what choices I made or whatever for a character. And it is always a pleasant surprise to me that it's not shitty, that mm. it doesn't suck. Um, wow. So that's, I'll give myself that much. <laughs> mm. I, I, I find, I also don't really go back and read my stuff, but I do find when I have to um, that I'm always annoyed at myself for all the storytelling stuff in it but i always find and pleasantly surprised by the jokes i'm always like joke. <laughs> i don't know what that says about me but i'll like read a book and i'm just like i'll read something i wrote and i'll just be scowling the whole time and then i'll chuckle and be like that was funny good job <laughs> and i like that makes me hate myself even more where i'm just like what an asshole i used to I be a bad like, writer but i was always funny i've always been funny yeah <laughs> like i'm fucking damn funny that's good um but it is uh uh yeah i don't i i I also couldn't answer that question ethan of like am i a different i mean i i would like to think that i do disagree with stuff and uh i have changed i know for me like the big one for me and it isn't so much who i was as much as understanding a relationship with an audience is kind Mm of uh on on when i wrote we can never go home i thought it was pretty obvious in the story that like by the end of it that the male lead is an asshole and sort of a monstrous person and the female lead is sort of you know has to overcome him and move on and then i would go to cons and people were cosplaying him or getting tattoos of him or like being like he's the fucking coolest and i was kind of like that doesn't feel great to me um and then i wrote an essay in the back of the trade being like 
it isn't about him being an asshole, but it's about the use of guns in it and how I didn't, you know, I felt like I fetishized the guns too much and how, like, it, you know, I, I made a conscious decision in the book that, like, every time the trigger is pulled, like, there are consequences that are real and very destructive and very bad for the characters. But still, people were like, you know, he's he's a badass. And I was like, he's not. He's literally going around ruining everybody he comes into contact with life. Uh, and that, for me, was a big moment of, like, yeah, I really don't think I did what I meant to do with this book. And I'm glad people like it. But I don't think that's any fault of yours, though. I mean, let's think of another example of people fetishizing gun violence and look at the Punisher. Like, sure. that was not at all uh, the intent <laughs> when the Punisher was created. Yeah. Well, when I wrote the Punisher, I wanted him to be, like, uh, fetishized. But that's just my own personal spin on the character. I was like, I really want cops to put this on their cars that feels good to me that's a good feeling uh, <laughs> the, uh the no i yeah i i but there is that thing of like how much are you responsible for the audience's interpretation and i i mm. i go back and forth on that like obviously i don't think we should just be writing diatribes and preaching to the audience and i do think that there is you know in all entertainment and art always there's a media literacy problem of people not quite processing things the right the way that maybe they should but also like it's art it's interpretive like hmm. so i do writing these like violence fantasies and stuff it does weigh on me a lot of like well how much of this is how much can i counteract this and how much am i just playing into these fetishes and power fantasies and i don't know like i feel like you do a really good job in your work of sort of subverting a lot of that stuff. Is that is that something that you set out to do to sort of be, you know, challenging the sort of the the status quo of what like traditional superhero books are? Is that a conscious decision of yours going in? It's not. But I think what you're picking up on is uh, more or less the fact that I kind of have a character first approach, um, which is... I'll admit a holdover from my fandom days. It's, you know, not necessarily a way of thinking I've been able to completely kick. Um, I, my, my process is I tend to inhabit the character's mind first. I get a beat on their voice, on their decision-making, on, what affects them and kind of what their inner world is like. And then the story kind of forms around that. And um, it's a very individualistic approach. Um, but for me, a measure of my success on that front is when people get mad at me for making them love a character they previously hated. Um, yeah. Like that's... <laughs> I get, I get real satisfaction about making people yeah. miserably in love with like iBoy or North star <laughs> or <laughs> all of these people. Um, so I, if I had to guess, um, you know, when you talk about my work kind of subverting like the power fantasies and that kind of thing, that's not something that I recognize in my own work, but if I had to guess, I think it would be that differentiation. Mm -hmm. I think that makes sense, though. I feel like, you know, strong, smart characters sort of defy the 
the tropes and the the cliches mm -hmm. of the medium right like that's that's our goal at least is like to to have characters that people care about more than have you know fight scenes and outcomes that people care about i think really yeah I, i'm curious you know because you i mean we talked about you know your sort of presence on social media you're you were a huge x person um mm. huge x-men fan uh and talked about the x-men a lot i have a couple questions about that but but the first would just be sort of do you feel like that was helpful to you mm. going into the x-men going into writing x stuff like i uh, i was told early on in my career like you know, don't don't tell people what you actually love. Like, just just say the thing you're working on is what you love, or whatever. You know, just like don't you know, don't let people know what you're actually about. And I think that's horrible advice. And like, you know, I'm a huge X Men fan and was always rallying the X Men and and boosting the X Men. And then got to write X Men and you know, for better or worse. But it uh it. it do you feel like that was beneficial to you to sort of be known as as a big X fan? Do you feel like that helped you in the world there navigating? I do, yeah. Um, I think that it, like using Emma Frost as an example, because I don't think there's anybody I've tweeted about more than Emma Frost. <laughs> than Emma Frost. Um, Is she your favorite X Men? She's one of them. Yeah, for sure. But she's also one that I feel is kind of one of the most unjustly like maligned characters. I hate the way people talk about her online. Oh. Like she's a slut and, sure. you know, all these awful things like, Ooh, it just, it really gets under my skin. So I think that this is something that, uh, helped me um regardless of you know it translating to opportunities with her uh writing her down the line or not i think it helped me uh have more confidence in writing her because you know an example is like i would go off on these impassioned like super fan threaded uh like rants about her and why people were wrong about her and I would change minds and <laughs> I would get people strangers to think about her in a new way from my tweets alone so then when I had the opportunity to write her it was like all right I got this <laughs> I can I can do this right um and uh, I I think it absolutely helped me in that regard um it has also hindered me in uh -huh. other aspects for sure though. Like it took me a while to unlearn over enthusiastic, like fandom rants in my editor's inboxes. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, you know, I, the reason I kept getting work despite, you know, being super excited and typing these like, essays of ideas and talking about the characters just excitedly the reason i kept getting work despite that is because my editors were very kind uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, you know if i had been working with people who had less patience i would have been done <laughs> the yeah. first year it would have been over for me um but that was like 
you know, a fandom holdover that I, I had to train myself out of and like, save it for the page, idiot. Like, don't, don't do this to people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I, I had to go back a couple years ago and look at a bunch of like, I was looking for an email I sent and I was going through emails I sent to like, I was looking for an, a file that I didn't have on my computer, but I was like, Oh, it's an e- a thing I sent to editors. The attachment I, at some point. Yeah. The attachment. And I'm seeing these emails I was sending to editors. I didn't know at the start of my career that I'm like, nobody read this whole email. Like no, <laughs> yeah, no yeah, person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just like, yeah. This, I, I, I'm like, I know this person now they have, 20 minutes a day to answer emails tops from people they don't know like they are they're working mm-hmm, 14 mm-hmm. hour days and mm-hmm. i wrote a 30 minute read email like three <laughs> paragraphs yeah. agonizing over the punctuation is yeah. this too many exclamation points what kind of <laughs> sign off should i put here like yeah I, it was i was so intense about it all yeah I and now a, it's when you... like i don't do sign offs it's like one or two <laughs> sentences yeah. max I got other shit to do. I can't concentrate on this. Yeah. When you're that level of fan and you're that level of engaged, do you come into the space going, I have a million stories I want to tell with these characters, or is there any difficulty in being like, what is my story with these characters? Cause like Griffin and I are obsessive Spider-Man fans, but when we think about the prospect of writing a Spider-Man thing, it's like, do we have anything to add to it though? I don't know. <laughs> like, like, did you come in going like this is, I want to do this and this and this. Um, I did, but I think that's also another example of, you know, somewhat like hindering myself in a way um, because having a million ideas like that mm. is partly what contributed to these way too long, mm. like prosaic emails to my editors. But also I, I think that now as a professional, I've learned to kind of loosen up my mm. uh conception of these characters and the stories that can be told with them because it's most likely that you know the the very like clear granular ideas of the stories that I had for the characters would have been negated by something else in the works with them anyways you know what I mean like there was already too much stuff going on with the character that I didn't even know about that would have made my concepts obsolete, uh, like right off the bat. So, you know, like I, I I kind of look back at it as like, okay, those were my fan fiction, (laughs) uh, prompts. Like that's, that's what that was. And I, I, I don't hold them as close to my heart as I used to. Like I, as a fan, I had really clear ideas of where I thought, a bunch of the characters should go and in what directions and that kind of thing. But now it's like, what happens happens. And if they're in my custody, that's when I start thinking about it. But if not, you know, it's uh, another writer's turn to take them to the next place. Hmm. Was, was getting, obviously you were doing X stuff a little before the Krakoa era, but like, was getting to do the amount of X-Men stuff you've done, but in Krakoa, like, a, uh, is that part of that? Because you're getting these characters that you love and care so much about and have a big poster of, but they're just different. They're like the world and the settings are different. Does that 
was that a great experience like an open playground like almost all the Krakoa writers I know talk about like how it was a wide open road but a lot of them were not as rabid x-men fans as some of the other ones that like say you i know so i'm wondering how it felt for you as a as a writer to get there but have it be just a little different i never expected to be a part of hickman's um x-men i thought that you know like they're there was no way I, I kind of already knew that because of my social media presence, I had been vetoed already. Yeah. Like I was out. Um, so I, it, it was like a non-issue for me, but I was still reading it uh, because like I was on board with the concept of Krakoa immediately. It was exactly what I needed as a reader. And I think what a lot of other people needed, like they, sure. um, a, a, a place to feel safe and not as marginalized, you know, mm-hmm. not being othered, that kind of thing. Um, and I had the same sort of like fandom trepidation when it was first announced, like, Oh God, what's going to happen to these characters? They're all getting reset. Like, what is this? This is no. terrifying. I don't want that to go. I don't want that to happen. But then once I was reading it, I was like, Oh, I see. I see. Um, so I was like fully on board with it before I got the call about, uh, writing stuff within Krakoa. And then it was just like, if you thought that I had over-enthusiastic long-ass emails before (laughs) that point, it was off to the races afterwards. Like I had a thousand ideas because part of, you know, Hickman's credo going into it was, don't be destructive. Like we're not trying to tear down this world. We're trying to build it up and kind of strengthen this narrative and these characters in this world. So look for additive stories. Mm -hmm. And um, like that was kind of, you know, even aside from X-Men storytelling in general, I had never thought about comics writing in those terms before, destructive and additive. And yeah. now it's always something that I kind of keep in the back of my head when I'm writing. Like, mm-hmm. is this destructive or is this additive? Like, what's the get at yeah. the end of this? Once this story mm-hmm. ends, what's going to be the net gain? Yeah. Have I left material for other writers to use in their future stories? Or am I destroying something for the sake of destruction. Um, So it's made me way more mindful about it. And then in Krakoa, it was just kind of like, (sighs) okay, I made, because it didn't exist before, I made a mutant database for us to use that is searchable by power set, by like, shapes and colors like not ethnicities but i mean mutants that are green mutants that are blue like you know here's the rainbow spectrum like i that that is how granular i got there are two full-ass elephants sentient elephants living in (laughs) one is mamamex and the other is uh i can't remember his name but his power is he makes people horny he's got (laughs) a very specific pheromone power Uh and kind of creepy, but 
still that is well now now i know a character that i do feel i have stories for if i ever (laughs) the horny elephant the horny elephant yeah i've got a lot to bring to that i've got a lot of additive stuff (laughs) i i like also codified uh how many gelatinous mutants there are and (laughs) can i ask how many gelatinous mutants there are do you know there are three Okay. Wow. <laughs> there's blob herman there's sure. sack and there's jelby <laughs> does dupe count no because dupe is an alien he's not even on the list at all okay. he looks squishy all right. also also he's not gelatinous he's I, just I say no, he's, like, he's like a yeah. very smart booger yeah <laughs> i was gonna say like gumby but when you put it that way gumby's sort of like a very smart booger too yes. so that, <laughs> How many uh, very smart booger X-Men are there on the list? <laughs> Is that its own category? Probably, yeah. Probably you a know, new category. It's beautiful. Uh, it's weird because I have I, a pitch in to, to Jordan called Very Smart Boogers, and it's a whole squad. <laughs> and Jordan's not answering my text messages. When I show up at his house, he's not going to the door. I think he may not have read the pitch yet, maybe is what it is. Um, I had a last question because I'm always fascinated when we have a guest on who has written prose um, and, and is involved in other mediums. Where did that come from? And is this something that you're wanting to do more of, or is comics kind of your home at this point? I definitely want to write more prose. It's something that I constantly have to pull back on in my scripts because mm-hmm. I, I story for comics readers, but I script for my editors and my artists because mm-hmm. if they're not having fun while reading the script, then what's the point, you know? So there's always like, you know, it's like a letter to them, basically, that I'm writing. Um, but I, I love prose, and I would say it's probably my first love, um, even before comics or screenwriting. And it's mm. because I come from a very bookish background, a bookish family. I grew up in uh, William Faulkner's house in Mississippi. My mom was a curator, um, and I was a real bookish child and I still read a ton. Um, so it is just kind of the way my brain functions. Um, a lot of the time, uh, or I, I should say like half the time when I'm, uh, doing idea generation for stories, it, sort of solidifies in prose form and then I have to mm. translate it into script. Other times it's like script first and visuals first. Right. Um, I was going to ask about Faulkner's house because I knew that, <laughs> but then I I scuttled that. But you brought it up, so we're going in. Um, when you say you did, you live there or did you just spend time there because your mom worked? So there? from the time that I was like, I don't even know how young until I was about seven or eight. Um, it, it was Roanoke and there was no air conditioning, no TV, no internet. Um, and uh, like no glass on the doors for tourists to peer through. And um, I have a Cohen brothers story. You want to hear that? Obviously. Of course. Okay. <laughs> so I think, um, I know it, I must've been about 11 years old at this time. Yeah, because I was in the sixth grade. Um, so it, there was like kind of 
sectioned off areas that weren't available to the public. And one of these places was the kitchen and it still had all the original appliances and, you know, dishware and that kind of thing. And the kitchen table is where I would sit and do my homework after school. And, um, one time, uh, I was just sitting there doing my homework and I look up and there's two grown men I'd never seen before, just kind of frozen and staring at me. And I had no idea who they were, but I knew, you know, they're not supposed to be back here. Like this is our area. You can't uh-huh. be here. So I just started yelling. <laughs> sure. And it turns out it was the Cohen brothers. They uh, had asked to go back there. And my mom said no, um, because, you know, like that's that's not available for the public. So they waited until her back was turned and hopped the little divider to go and look themselves. I know that you're telling this story from a point of this is very bad and they shouldn't have done that. But also, it's I have to say, it's a very Cohen Brothers story. I, I, I love it, <laughs> and I'm I'm like, that's amazing. I also, in my head, can't help but think that they thought you were a tiny ghost just in the <laughs> oh, kitchen. Well, sitting no, the there kitchen. is that's another. Okay. that's what I was thinking. So, <laughs> uh, when I was in elementary school, um, rumors would circulate about Roanoke—that's the name of the place—being um, haunted because of the piano music that people could hear in the early evenings coming Mm -hmm. out of this house. But that was me. That was literally me. I was just kind of like plunking at the piano, waiting for, you know, the place to close. And uh, it it just ended up being this rumor that the place was haunted by a little girl. You are Faulkner's ghost in this (laughs) story. Okay. Um, yeah, it's not bad. That's not a bad. If you're gonna be a ghost, that's a really good ghost to be. I think that's like a top <laughs> ten ghost, American oh, yeah. ghost. Like mm-hmm. uh, if you go to other continents, other countries, there's probably much better ghosts. But for American ghost, that's a top ten American ghost. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Solid um, The name of yeah. the Coen Brothers' next movie about the top ten American Amer- ghost. Top 10 American ghosts. That's not a bad name. Mm-hmm. Cut that out of the show. We're going to keep that. We're keeping that for ourselves. <laughs> in the back the, pocket. The, uh, so I want to talk about where you're headed now. Uh, we actually taped these like well in advance. So the book may be out by the time people listen to this. But you are launching Power Girl at DC coming up. Mm-hmm. Um. This to me, uh, I was there. There are rarely moments in comics where you read a casting of creators on a book and then you're just like, oh, that's really smart. And this was one where I was like, oh, this is a character that people underestimate and oversimplify and don't give the respect that they deserve to this character. And Leah's going to come in and make this like, the smart badass funny cool character that that she is and i i was like so excited about this book now's where you're supposed to be like it's not any of that it's (laughs) but but i'm i'm so excited was this was this something that you wanted were you gunning for power girl how did this come about i wasn't because i didn't know it was an option um 
I, you know, she's been shelved for a pretty long time. So I wasn't thinking in terms of stories for her, but uh, it was Teeny Howard actually who put my name forward uh, for this because she was talking to Paul Kaminsky at, I think it was last year's or maybe before then at some ago comic-con san diego comic-con i think it was um they were discussing power girl and paul was kind of being hopeful about her future and like the kind of character she could be and the Mm -hmm. property the stories that could be told with her and teeny started kind of filling in the blanks for him and like finishing his sentences and this this is this and he was like yeah oh my god that's it and then teeny was like you need to read leo williams's work <laughs> i'm gonna put you two in touch and so sure enough once he and i connected about it we were very much on the same frequency with um the the kind of vibes for her mm-hmm. moving forward and for me this is absolutely thrilling because it's my first chance um well it's my first time working with dc uh which was definitely you know a huge goal of mine but also they're having me kind of do what i love doing which is bringing people into feelings hell with me and loving Uh a character they didn't previously love yeah and i i don't know i feel just like it's it's time to make people hurt for power girl just love her so much (laughs) and i i cannot wait to make people sick with longing it's gonna be great um yeah i i i really do feel like when i got to dc power girl is one of the characters that i was always like power girl's so cool and like they just don't do enough with her like she's just not i feel like I feel like there's, and I don't know, you know, internally what the feeling is, but I feel like in some ways they're like, well, we have Supergirl, like we have that. And I'm, and they're just such different characters and, and Power Girl fills such a different void that I, I'm for sure. I'm really excited about, about it and, and what you're going to bring to it. I think it's, I think it's one of the, it's one of the new book announcements that I was like the most like, oh, that's really like. Thank you. you. I, yeah, I'm so stoked. Um, And uh, when I used to work in the comic book shop, uh, I would get regular customers kind of begging me to cosplay Power Girl. So I picked up some Power Girl issues for the first time and I opened it like please don't let it be the obvious. Don't let it be the obvious. And of course it was the obvious. Um, And uh, now I really love making the joke over and over again, that representation is important. (laughs) That big titty bimbos matter. And um, uh, nobody thinks it's as funny as I do, but that's okay. (laughs) no i'm sure i'm sure once you once dc tweets it out i'm sure from the official account (laughs) that joke will really take off (laughs) um no i you know i i it's exciting i I feel like there's a lot of very fun stuff happening at dc and and it's always cool to look over at the other books across the shelves and be like oh this is yeah like yes that's a that's a book that i want to read i i feel like that's a good a good place to wrap it Mm -hmm. 
but yeah. I just wanted to say, Leah, like, thank you so much for coming on and uh, under not great circumstances uh, of, of today <laughs> being so it. Thanks for having me. Um, I knew this was going to be fun. I knew that it, it would be a blast chatting with you guys. So thanks for finally having me on here. Yeah. We've been and told that the show is a real day brightener. Uh, so. no one no one's no one said that but um we tell it to time. ourselves we yeah you say yeah. it that doesn't yeah, i'm always happen. like guys i'm i'm doing much better than i was two hours ago oh absolutely <laughs> you guys are like sunshine embodied look at that uh, well leah you're awesome and uh it is it has been really fun for me as as someone who enjoys your work watching you do more kick-ass stuff all the time and and do books that i'm like oh man i wish i was writing that book and then reading it and being like nope <laughs> i'm just really happy i get to read it and this book exists is is like about as high a compliment as i can give give to someone i feel like our tastes overlap a lot and uh and you're just crushing it and and making me a very happy comic book reader so so thank you for that and thank you for taking the time out of your awful day <laughs> to come and be with us and uh of course, of course. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Leah. Thanks for being really here. It was a great chat with you guys. And that brings us to the end of part two of our discussion with Leah Williams. Make sure to check out Power Girl and everything else she's working on by giving her a follow on Twitter at MyMonsterIsChic. To get the latest episodes of this podcast, as well as news, giveaways, and even comics delivered straight to your inbox, go to ashcanpress.com and sign up for the newsletter. We'll be back next week with another wonderful guest. And in the meantime, you can write to us at ideasdontbleedpod at gmail.com or tweet to Matthew Rosenberg at ashcanpress on Twitter, me at tales to astonish or Griffin at Griff Sheridan. We'll include some of your correspondence on the show, and we'd love to hear what you have to say. And big thanks to Summer People for our theme song, Where's the Poison? Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Where is the poison?